Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 25. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although for some episodes we'll stretch into the 1930s. And in this episode I'm going to discuss an odd mixed styles match from 1884 between the first full-time American professional wrestler J.H. McLaughlin and the Scottish athlete and wrestler, Duncan C. Ross. But first, I wanted to give a little update on the upcoming schedule for June and July. With one possible exception, you're pretty much going to be stuck with me. These will be single episodes for the next two months. Uh, One of my frequent guests has been getting prepared for an estate sale, which we've been down uh, helping him with. And that won't happen until the middle of July. So until that happens, I I won't be able to get my cousin back in the studio unless we happen to be able to record one while we're down there, which has been a little bit difficult with all the work we're trying to get done for the estate sale. And I still have hopes that I will get my son back onto the podcast here in the next few months as well. But for June and July... I think it's pretty much going to be single episodes, but that's okay because we've got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, One of the things that I wanted to, I guess, plug or talk about was a podcast I recently heard with um, wrestling historian Mike Chapman. He was a guest on the Shut Up and Wrestle podcast with uh, Brian Solomon, and I will put the link in the show notes at kenzermanjr.com slash episode 25. But I normally avoid reading the work or listening to the interviews for historians that are covering the same time frame that I'm covering for the simple fact that uh, probably about eight or nine years ago now, uh, Kenny Florian, who's a former MMA fighter and is now an MMA announcer and journalist, was chastised online by several people because, and I I truly believe this was inadvertent, he was taking notes to prepare for an upcoming show to talk about one of the upcoming fights, and he took material that he had been doing research with and did not cite the website where he got it from, and he said it was an honest mistake that he had taken the notes and hadn't written that down, and when he reviewed the notes, he thought that that was something that he had come up with, and I know a lot of people be like, uh, it's easier than you think. When you do a lot of research and you've done a lot of reading, it's not that difficult to start everything kind of running together and you start getting confused about what you have surmised and what others might have surmised. So to try to make sure that never happened, I have studiously avoided 
reading the contemporary works on the subjects that I research. And Mike Chapman wrote one of the uh, most famous books on Frank Gotch, which to this day I've still not read, but I feel comfortable reading it now. And the reason I listen to the podcast is I've pretty much written everything about Frank Gotch that I'm going to write. And I've read his autobiography. I read Pro Wrestling by Ed Smith, who was frequently, he was the sporting editor for the Chicago American. And he was frequently the referee on some of Gotch's most famous title fights, such as the second, uh, actually I think both matches with Hackenschmidt and the match with uh, Stanislaw Sabisco. Smith, in the early 19-teens, wrote a history of pro wrestling, but it was really a thinly veiled love letter about Frank Gotch, who he greatly admired. And I've covered Gotch in Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, Gotch versus Zabisco, and Shooting or Working, the History of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. If Gotch appears in any other works, it'll just be, you know, little blurbs here and there. And I've pretty much researched all that I could possibly research. because I'm So I'm not as concerned anymore about accidentally plagiarizing someone. Most plagiarism is not accident. It is theft of someone's work. So I take that very seriously. But I think that people can accidentally do so. Although I think the majority of cases it's not accidental. So with all that long-winded disclaimer, I will say that I really enjoyed the interview. Many of his conclusions are the same conclusions I've drawn about this time frame and about the people involved. A lot of times we get there through different routes. Um, I know that Chapman uh, admires a lot about Gotch and thinks some of the things that were written about him he just would not do because they were not in his character. I don't know that he wouldn't do them because they were not in his character, but I do agree with Mike Chapman when he says Gotch is not stupid, which he was not. He was a very good businessman, which he was, and he's not going to pay Ad Centel $5,000 to hurt somebody that he knows he's going to beat. I think it's much more likely he paid Santel a couple hundred dollars to get the information about Hackenschmidt uh, being injured in training, but... Santel did not do the injury. And there has been some question about whether Santel was in camp. He was in camp. Uh, the newspapers had him in there under his uh, real name, which was Adolf Ernst. So the reason I went into that, and I'm going to talk about this actually in one of the July podcasts, I have always believed that the matches between Earl Caddock and Joe Stecker in 1917 and 1920 were works. I have not read detailed descriptions of the 1917 match. I have read up on the 1920 match, and I've, of course, seen the little bit of grainy footage that exists of that match. And I've always believed, because of the time frame they occurred, because of the things I read about in the, the newspapers, and there was some exposure to the fact that they called that the Curly title, and that Curley was trading it around between Caddick, Stecker, and Zabisco. Well, Vladek Zabisco, not Stanislaw Zabisco. That those matches were works. But based on Chapman's research, he talked to the sons of Earl Caddick. 
I will say that wrestlers didn't always smarten up their families. They didn't always uh, let them know what was a work and what was a contest. But based on Chapman's research on Gotch, I am going to go back and read up on both of those matches. And I will give my opinion on whether I think they were contests or works or whether one was a contest and one was a work, both works, both contests. I will do that in one of the July podcasts. So right now I'm thinking it's going to be the July 10th episode, but it'll, either, it'll definitely be the 10th or the 24th. I was going to actually talk about it on the second podcast for this month, this month, which will come out on June 26th, but I've actually got another match I want to talk about based on researching this book on Sorokichi Matsuda. I knew that Muldoon sometimes worked matches, William Muldoon, the World Heavyweight Wrestling Champion between 1880 and 1889. I knew William Muldoon sometimes worked matches and that he had lost some matches, but the matches he lost and also worked most of the time were always handicap matches, meaning Muldoon agreed, I will throw Wrestler X three times within 60 minutes. I will throw Wrestler X five times within 90 minutes, or Wrestler X will be considered the winner. And I knew he, he lost a couple of those, and a lot of times those led into world title matches where then he would win. However, I recently discovered a straight-up wrestling match. It was a mixed styles match, so it was not for his world championship. But I recently discovered a straight-up wrestling match that he lost in 1886. So that will be the subject of next, uh, po- the next podcast in two weeks. So this podcast will come out on the 12th on June 26th. Episode 26 will come out. And the main topic for that will be this mixed styles match that I recently discovered. So with those updates out of the way, let's jump into the main content of the show this week. This week I wanted to cover another mixed styles match. And it was between the first full-time professional wrestler, meaning he didn't have... A lot of professional wrestlers in the 19th century and even the early 20th century had careers besides being professional wrestlers. They might be the town baker, or they were a blacksmith, or they were a farmer. And they also wrestled professionally. McLaughlin was the first one to earn a living through his wrestling exploits. And he wrestled as early as 18, in the 1860s. However, I've not found any of those matches yet. And I have been looking. So I'm hoping that at some point in time I will find his earliest matches. But most of the matches I have him involved in are in the 1870s and 1880s. And on uh, April 10th, 1884... McLaughlin wrestled a mixed styles match. It was a three out of five falls mixed styles match with Duncan C. Ross, who was a Scottish athlete and wrestler. Besides being a wrestler, he also competed in kind of track events and things like that. And he came to the United States in the late 1870s and was a very big name in wrestling in the 1880s. He wrestled Edwin Bibby in 1881 to establish the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. The match that they had is the one that established that. Ross 
was considered an expert in side hold wrestling, but he was also a very good catch wrestler. Hence why he wrestled Bibby for the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship in uh, January of 1881. So the men agreed beforehand that they would wrestle two falls in collar and elbow wrestling, which was the style that McLaughlin was considered an expert in. Ross would they would wrestle two whole two falls by side hold rules, which was a specialty for Ross. And then the men, if the match was tied after four falls, which a lot of times it would be when you had the two people who were really specialists in these styles of wrestling, they agreed to wrestle the final fall in under catches catch can wrestling rules, catch wrestling rules, but the little wrinkle was they would wear jackets like you normally wore in collar and elbow wrestling, Cornish wrestling. There are several styles of wrestling in the 19th century that involved a jacket sort of similar to what you'd see in judo. Now the coverage of this match in the Detroit Free Press uh, showed one of the problems wrestling has had almost from the beginning. Remember this is an 1884 match. And the reporter who was writing for it in the Detroit Press, Free Press, I'm sorry, the, the name of the newspaper was the Detroit Free Press. He already shows his bias within the first few lines of the article. He was quoted as saying, Considering the fact that Detroit has been wrestled pretty effectively of late, there was a much larger attendance at the Detroit Opera House last evening than was expected by those who are unaware of the fact that Detroit people rather enjoy to be Barnumized. So this reporter already believes that the wrestling is prearranged, or they had a term for the newspaper in the 19th century called hippodroming, meaning that they were working together to put the match on. You would see ads in newspapers for matches. So say that you were going to have Muldoon wrestle Evan Strangler Lewis. In that little block ad that was in the newspaper, it would say underneath their names and, you know, wrestling for the world title, no hippodroming. So the, this, the, the charge of working matches goes back as long as professional wrestling has existed in the United States. So in many of the mixed style matches, it was considered an advantage to be able to go first. So a lot of times that was all discussed determined by a coin flip sometimes they would agree before the match when they agreed to the articles but a lot of times it was a coin flip in the ring so McLaughlin won the toss that was easy for me to say McLaughlin won the toss and chose collar and elbow for the first fall but the first odd thing about this match is instead of wearing the customary jackets the men wrestled in a harness and the harness was the equipment that was used for side hold. Why they didn't use the jackets for the collar and elbow escapes me because they had them for the catch wrestling fall, but they wore harness they wore harnesses for the first four falls. And McLaughlin has never used a harness, I guess that he had not wrestled much side hold. Because side hold and back hold were two other forms of wrestling, but they were very uncommon. Certain specialists from Europe 
would sometimes ask for those style matches. But for the most part, the dominant styles were Greco-Roman and catch wrestling. Those are the two dominant ones. And then you also had collar and elbow, which was used, they wore jackets. That was fairly common. Cornish wrestling, which was with jackets, was fairly common. And that's about it for the common styles. Those were the four most common styles. And then you would have side hold and back hold. With Sorokichi Matsuda, you had Japanese style, which originally I thought was with jackets like judo matches that they would have later. But no, that was actually sumo rule matches. So not to beat a, a dead horse, they wear harnesses. And McLaughlin has never worn one. So Ross helps McLaughlin by showing him the proper way to put on the harness. Ross knows he's at a big disadvantage in the first fall. So he just tries to defend against McLaughlin's attacks by not moving his feet. He's just basically standing there like a statue. And he was a fairly big guy. He was almost 200 pounds. And McLaughlin is pretty big too. He's 190 in shape and about 235 out of shape. And in this match, I think he was more around the 190. But Ross is standing there like a statue. So after about five minutes, the referee, E.H. Gillum, tells Ross, you know, the rules do require you to pick your foot up every great once in a while. So Ross reluctantly picks a foot up. And McLaughlin immediately throws him with a hip toss. He doesn't get the pin, though. Ross jumps back up, but McLaughlin tosses him again. This time, Ross can't bridge out of it, and McLaughlin pins Ross at the seven-minute mark. So, not very surprising. McLaughlin wins the first fall in collar and elbow. They take about a 20-minute break, and after the 20-minute rest they come back and they do side hold in the harnesses again ross needs less than a minute to throw mclaughlin in side hold so mclaughlin doesn't get pinned right away either but ross just keeps throwing him and after th four fault throws mclaughlin's had enough ross pins him for the second fall in four minutes so they're tied one apiece now we're going to do the third fall it's in collar and elbow wrestling uh, McLaughlin, I don't know how he quite did this in a harness. I've tried to visualize it, but he grabbed an inside single leg lock on the left leg, switched it to an outside single leg lock on the right leg, and then put Ross to the mat on four points, scoring the pinfall. How you switch around on those legs when you're tied up with a harness, I don't know, but he managed to do it. Then Ross won the fourth fall in less than 30 seconds. So... The reporter, remember, he's a skeptic. He reports that between the fourth and fifth falls, that a spectator said, Mac will now surprise the world, meaning McLaughlin, by throwing the champion catches catch can wrestler. Besides, it's his turn. Now, while Ross never won a catch wrestling championship, Ross is a much better catch wrestler than McLaughlin. And you would think that there's no way McLaughlin could beat him in the catch fall. But they go under the catch fall, they're wearing the jackets, and they start tugging on each other on the jackets for a few minutes. And McLaughlin takes and does basically a knee strike on Ross when they're being jerked around. He re lifts his knee up and digs uh, the knee into Ross's stomach. That's a clear violation of the rules. Any strikes, punches, kicks, knees, should be a disqualification but the official doesn't disqualify 
McLaughlin for the knee. Ross is furious about it and rushes at McLaughlin, but the seconds restrain both men. And then Gillum, who didn't disqualify McLaughlin for the clear foul, turns around and disqualifies Ross for trying to attack McLaughlin after the foul. And this infuriates the crowd who start to throw things, so Gillum gets out of the ring as quick as he can and runs to the back. And so one of the things I, I wanted to, to point out about this was the trading of falls was rather typical of work matches back in the 19th century, even in the early 20th century. So when they quoted the person as saying, besides it's his turn, a lot of times when the matches were being worked, you would have that trading of falls back and forth. The other thing that was the kind of screwy finish at the end, this is before that really became widespread with Tootsmont and the Goldust Trio, but you will see controversial finishes to work matches even back then. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. So Mott probably knew of some of the finishes that had been used in the past when matches were worked, and he just built on that and improved it. So while the Detroit Free Press reporter was a cynic, he was also right about this match. McLaughlin and Ross were working that match. And you might ask, well, why would they work the match? Well, there was a couple reasons, and it always comes down to money. So if you want to know why the wrestlers work matches, at the bottom of almost all of it is the desire to make as much money as they could, like many other professionals. Unfortunately, the reason professional wrestling got the unseemly reputation it had, the hippodroming in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So in the late 70s and early 80s when I started watching wrestling and the matches were prearranged, it wasn't hurting anybody because nobody was betting on the matches. Even if you were a believer, I didn't see fans that believed betting on the matches. But in the 19th century, all the way up into the 30s, betting on professional wrestling matches was common. So if, that's, if it's a legitimate contest, it's no big deal. It's a legitimate contest. But if it's a worked match, the betting can be manipulated, and many wrestlers were implicated in betting schemes through the years. Martin Farmer Byrne is one of the most respected professional wrestling trainers in history, and he has a fairly good reputation amongst historians because of his training of Frank Gotch, Toots Mott, Joe Stecker, uh, so many of the great pro wrestlers of the 20th century up until he quit training people in the 1930s. But Burns, while he was the American heavyweight wrestling champion, was running gambling schemes with D.A. McMillan, who would go into a town under a different name, and they would work gambling schemes in these towns and then get out of town on the, the quickest train possible. And it was always to improve the cash flow. So you would often hear a match, okay, we're going to wrestle for $500 a side, and then 70% of the gate receipts will go to the winner, 
30% of the gate receipts will go to the loser. And back in this era, you could have that much going because a lot of the times you didn't have a promoter. You had backers or organizers who were fans who wanted to see the match themselves. So they often lost money getting a venue and that and putting things together. But the wrestlers, instead of doing a 70-30 split, first of all, the $500 would be a fiction. If it's a work match, we don't have $500 aside. That's just a fiction. We tell people we have $500 aside because we're going to split everything. So whatever portion of the gate receipts the wrestlers receive, we split that 50-50. We don't split that 70-30. And if we're working together on the gambling end as well, we split everything we take in gambling 50% as well. And it's very shady, but it's why a lot of those matches were worked. When you get into the nineteen late 19-teens and early 1920s, it, it was still about the gambling because that was still a lucrative part of the, what the promotion would take in. But it was more about control. Promoters wanting to control who held the title, making sure that the best earners were the champion, not necessarily the best wrestlers. So I hope that helps to understand why people, why people, why wrestlers work matches even as early as 1884. So next week, next week, in two weeks, when we talk about the mixed styles match, we'll talk about a match that was not worked, even though these guys would work matches occasionally. So before we end the show, I actually wanted to do a review this week, and I chose a territory outside of st louis but from around the time frame that i started watching wrestling i started watching wrestling around 1978 or 1979 and i can probably pinpoint it if i go back and i look at the newspaper articles advertising the uh, wrestling matches in st louis because it was when the von eric brothers dave well initially it was david and kevin Kerry came later, but my two, my favorite wrestlers when I first started watching wrestling were Ted DiBiase, who became the Missouri State Champion, and David Von Erich, and they both wrestled in St. Louis quite a bit, and I, I like Kevin, I like Kerry, but those are my two favorites to start out was David and Ted DiBiase, and I know that was around 78, 79, so I watched on YouTube, and I will have a link in the show notes for this as well, a wrestling card from Leo McGurk's Tri-State Wrestling from August 12, 1978. And Bill Watts was one of the commentators along with Leroy McGurk. And there were a couple of notes that I took on the show. Overall, the show was a typical pro wrestling show from that time era. You don't have really many main eventers. It's promos to build up the local house shows. And it's a few... Some weren't complete squash matches. Most were. But it was to build up the stars and get people to want to come out and pay to go to see the live event. So the first match to open the card was... Or to open the wrestling program was a very young Paul Orndorff versus a very uh, young Bill Irwin before he was Wild Bill Irwin. And Orndorff looks great already, and he has a decent wrestler to work with in Irwin. So Orndorff wins the match with a credible-looking full Nelson, 
and Irwin sells the effects of the hold after the match, which is also important. Today, they win the match, person pops right up and walks out of the ring like nothing happened. The second match absolutely shocked me. And my notes were, wow, Ray Candy can really move in this match. It was a match that they were showing from Georgia TV. And it was Ray Candy, the Candyman, versus the Challenger. That was his name. He was a mask guy. And he was just some interchangeable job guy. But Ray Candy, I never saw this version of Ray Candy. So I went back and actually did a little bit of research because I was shocked by how well he was moving around the ring. And he was trained by Dory Funk Jr. for wrestling. And you can tell in this match because he does plenty of mat wrestling. He does hip tosses takeovers he moves really really well i only remember him from the early to mid 80s when he was a bit older he'd gotten much heavier and it cost him a lot of his agility he wasn't able to move very much and his partner leroy brown who i've since seen younger in mid-atlantic he could move really well when he was younger too but by the time i saw them they were pretty much immobile they couldn't do much anymore um, they ended up becoming the Zambui Express, and unfortunately, both of them ended up dying young from the effects of heart attacks and strokes. So it was really sad, but if you get a chance, watch this match just to be amazed at how well he moved around the ring. Then we have an Reese Bowden interview with Cowboy Bob Ellis, and I think he, ever, he got every folksy saying he's ever heard in this promo about Ron Bass cutting his hair. And then Cowboy Bob Ellis wrestled Ali Bay the Turk, who looked nothing like a Turk. And Ellis looks pretty good for almost 50 years of age. And he's, I think he's still alive, and he's in his 90s now. Uh, he won the match with a signature Bulldog headlock. And then we have another match from Georgia Championship Wrestling, but this is from two tri-state wrestlers. And that's the big cat Ernie Ladd, again, against Bill Irwin. And Irwin, I noticed, is built from Detroit, Michigan, not Duluth, Minnesota. And this is pretty much a squash. Irwin gets in a couple punches. Ladd wins with the leg drop. <clears throat> and Ernie Ladd's already showing wear and tear. He's about 40 at this match. And at the end of the match, you can see he kind of reaches up and uses the top rope to help him get off the mat. And then we have an interview with Rock Hunter that was nothing to write home about. Uh, the Mongol versus Wade Holt didn't do anything for me. Outlaw Ron Bass versus Randy Brewer. And that ended up with a kind of a promo thing with Bass and Ellis, Ellis jumping into the ring. And then what I thought was actually the best match on the card, and that is the Brute versus Jose Lothario. The Brute is Bugsy McGraw. Uh, wrestling is the brute and Jose Lothario I only saw the older super sock Jose Lothario the super sock we see here is 45 years old and he looks much younger and McGraw is only 34 years old and it's a good back and forth uh, top of the mid card lower main event type match uh, when Jose starts getting the baddest of it the assassin interferes and like they kind of end up with a disqualification, kind of non-finish, which is what they would do a lot of time on TV. A lot of time on TV, you would get draws, 
or you would get the disqualifications, some kind of unclear finish that would have to be settled in the arena when people were paying to see it. So it wasn't a great show, but I thought there were some matches worth watching. Um, if you just want to skim through it, I would watch the Paul Orndorff match, the Ray Candy match, and then the match between uh, the Brute and Jose Lothario. And so with that, I think I'm going to end this week's episode. I do want to say that a few weeks ago, I did look at most of the shows from the promotions that were still around in 1982 when Vince takes over WWE and then starts the national expansion and basically over the next five or six years puts all the other promotions out of business. But even in 1982, you can tell a lot of the promotions were going to go down, probably whether Vince was involved or not. Uh, there were a few still that were really strong, and other things might affect them. But some of the promotions in 1982, you're looking at the shows, and the stars have aged out. They're not creating new stars, and the shows are not very compelling. So I'll talk about that in a future review. However, the modern reviews, and by modern I mean anything after 1980, are probably going to start falling by the wayside as I start to review more classic stuff. I've been watching some stuff with Jim Londis lately, and most of those are just partial matches, but I think that's what I'm going to do in the review going forward after we talk a little bit about 1982 and I might save the 1982 discussion uh, for the next time I get Danny on the podcast because he and I kind of lived through some of that so I'd like to get his thoughts on that as well so I hope you enjoyed this particular episode come back in two weeks and we will discuss the one of the few if not the only straightforward match that I know of William Muldoon losing in his nine years as champion so until next time everybody take care bye bye